Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 26, 2 Samuel, chapters 16 and 17. Well, David had barely escaped Jerusalem with his entourage of warriors and advisors and family when Absalom and his rebel forces arrived. And when David heard that a widespread and a well-organized revolt had happened and that his own son was its leader, King David fled to the east. He crossed the Kidron Valley and he climbed up and over the summit of the Mount of Olives by means of a pathway known as the Way of the Wild Olive Trees. And along the way he met a litany of well-wishers as well as messengers who brought him tidings of treachery and bad news. The two high priests, Eviatar and Sadok, accompanied by the Levites carrying the Ark of the Covenant, dutifully followed their king in this sad procession. But David told them, go back. Return the ark to its resting place and for them to remain in Jerusalem with the ark where they could act as informers. David's two closest royal advisors were Akitophel, Bathsheba's grandfather, and Hushai, who was awarded the honorary title Friend of David. And as he walked barefooted and head covered along the way of the wild olive trees, the king was given the heart-sinking news that Akitophel had thrown in with Absalom, and in fact had been instrumental in organizing the son of David's insurgency. Fortunately, the aged Hushai remained faithful, as appropriate of his title, And he insisted that he accompany David into the wilderness. But David appealed to Hushai's logic and told him that he'd be more burdened than blessing by such a choice and that it could help David far more by offering up his service to Absalom and then in the so doing, try to counteract the sound wisdom that Akitophel would be offering this new king. Because... Akitophel's brilliant mind was so highly regarded by one and all that it was said of him that his thoughts and advice were as though it had come directly from God. Thus the cunning David who had been violently shaken by God out of his long period of spiritual slumber and his ambivalence spontaneously set up a counterintelligence operation as he was leaving that had Hushai as his ears in the royal court of Absalom, who reported what he heard to the two high priests, who forwarded the information they received to their firstborn sons, who then went out and communicated it to David. Now I mentioned in an earlier lesson that several of the Psalms that we read in our Bibles were written by the despondent David during this period of Absalom's rebellion. Now we've read a couple of them. I'd like to add another to the list. And this is so that we might see the mindset of David at this terrible 
terrible period in his life. Open your Bibles to Psalm 3. Psalm 3. It is page 792 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. A psalm of David when he fled from Avshalom his son. Adonai, how many enemies I have, how countless are those attacking me. How countless those who say of me, there's no salvation for him in God. But you, Adonai, are a shield for me. You are my glory. You lift my head high. With my voice I call out to Adonai and he answers me from his holy hill. I lie down and sleep and then wake up again because Adonai sustains me. I'm not afraid of the tens of thousands set against me on every side. Rise up, Adonai, save me, my God. For you slap all my enemies in the face. You smash the teeth of the wicked. Victory comes from Adonai. May your blessing rest on your people. I'd like to point out a couple of things about this particular Psalm of David. First, you know, there may be no greater Bible hero than the King than King David. That he was a fallible man who sinned, even found himself subject of God's direct curse doesn't change that. We don't have to wonder how Yehovah felt about David because it's recorded for us. 1 Samuel 13, 13 and 14 says, Shmuel said to Shaul, Oh, you did a foolish thing. You did not observe the mitzvah, the commandments of Adonai, which he gave to you. If you had, Adonai would have set up your kingship over Israel forever. But as it is, your kingship will not be established because Adonai has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And Adonai has appointed him to be prince over his people because you did not observe what Adonai ordered you to do. And St. Paul reminds his listeners of this special position that David held in the Lord's eyes with this statement in Acts 13, 21-23. Then they asked for a king and God gave them Shaul ben Kish, a man from the tribe of Benjamin. And after 40 years, God removed him. And he raised up David as king for them, making his approval known with these words, I have found David ben Yeshai, David son of Jesse, to be a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want. In keeping with his promise, God has brought to Israel from this man's descendants a deliverer, Yeshua. So David's day-to-day behavior wasn't the measure of God's eternal love and approval of David. That's something we can all fall back upon when we inevitably stumble. Because it was David's unyielding trust in the Lord It was his firm understanding that the Lord will have mercy upon whom he will. 
It was this divine reality that brought David a, a saving righteousness. It wasn't strict adherence of the law. Yet David's trespasses against the law of Moses, including adultery and murder, indeed brought earthly consequences. It brought divine punishment. Even God's anointed king was subject to justice in the fourth of wrath and curse. We are subject to the same when we choose to be disobedient to the Lord's commandments. But we are also delivered to that same spiritual salvation when we firmly trust in the Lord by means of acknowledging His Son as our Messiah. Now second of all, take a look at Psalm 3 again. Look at verse 3. Very interesting. It says there, How countless are those who say of me, there is no salvation for him in God. In other words, many around King David, probably friend and foe alike, say that for what he has done, there can be no deliverance, earthly or otherwise, in the God of Israel. See, David has committed offenses for which there is no legal atonement. The Torah law gives no remedy. There is no substitutionary sacrifice or ritual to atone for murder or adultery. So from a purely physical and earthly perspective, those accusations that David is hearing are quite correct. However, for those who trust in God... While there may not be deliverance from the earthly consequences, up to and including death, for all these terrible sins, there can be heavenly, spiritual, eternal deliverance. Now what makes this verse so interesting is in the Hebrew word chosen here, for deliverance or salvation, depending upon your translation. Adding this familiar Hebrew word back into this verse makes it read in a very unexpected way. It says, there is no Yeshua for him in God. That's right. The word is Yeshua, the name of our Messiah. The people are literally saying to David that he is so cursed by God that all of his hope is gone. His sins are so great. There can be no Yeshua for him no matter how much he may regret those sins. And David knows they're wrong. Are you worried that because of your terrible sins perhaps there can be no Yeshua for you? Have you looked back upon your life and determined that it is probably useless to approach your Creator because you can't see how He could possibly give you Yeshua in light of the abominable things you've done? Well, there's good news for you. Despite what others thought, 
David was convinced that Yeshua, salvation, was for him too. Provided he maintained his trust in God and confessed with a contrite heart. And he depended on God's glory to be his righteousness. Now by no means does this mean that behavior doesn't matter. It sure mattered for David because he was going to be hit by curse after curse until the day he died because of his bad behavior. And even in the New Testament, Messianic believers like Ananias and Sapphira were supernaturally killed by God for their sins. Righteous behavior is expected. It's our duty for those of us who call upon the name of God through His Son, our Messiah. However, righteous behavior is not the pathway to salvation. Faith in Yeshua is. Yeshua is for salvation. Righteous behavior by being obedient to the Torah commandments is but the appropriate response owed to God for that salvation. Let's move on. Let's reread uh, Samuel chapter 16. Second Samuel chapter 16. Page 351 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. When David had gone a little past the summit, there was Siva, the servant of Mephibosheth, who met him with a pair of donkeys saddled and on them 200 loaves of bread, 100 bunches of raisins, 100 pieces of summer fruit and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziva, What do you mean by these? And Ziva replied, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on. The bread and summer fruit are for the young men to eat. The wine is for those who collapse in the desert to drink. The king asked, Where is your master's grandson? And Ziva answered the king, Oh, he's staying in Jerusalem. Because he said, Today the house of Israel will restore my father's kingship to me. And the king said to Ziba, Everything that belongs to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba answered, I bow down before you. May I find favor in your sight, my lord king. And when David arrived at Bahrim, there came out from there a man from Shaul's family named Shimei, the son of Gera. And he came out pronouncing curses and throwing stones at David and all of King David's servants even though all the people, including his bodyguards, surrounded him left and right. And when Shimei cursed, he said, Get out of here! Get out of here, you killer! You good-for-nothing! Adonai has brought back on you all the blood of the house of Saul. You usurped his kingship. But Adonai has handed over the kingdom to Absalom, your son. Now your own evil's overtaken you because you're a man of blood. Avishai, the son of Zeriah, said to the king, Why allow this dead dog to curse my lord the king? Just let me go over and remove his head. And the king said, Do you sons of Zeriah and I have anything in common? Let him curse. If Adonai tells him, Curse David, who has the right to ask, Why are you doing it? 
David then said to Abishai and all of his servants, Look, my own son who came from my own body seeks my life. So how much more now this Benjamite? Let him alone. Let him curse. If Adonai told him to, maybe Adonai will notice how I'm treating him and Adonai will reward me with good instead of his curses. So David and his men went on their way while on the opposite hillside Shimei kept pace with them, cursing, throwing stones, flinging dust as he went. The king and all the people with him arrived exhausted, so he rested there. Meanwhile, Avshalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Yerushalayim, and Akitophel was with him. Hushai, the Arki, David's friend, came to Avshalom and said to him, Long live the king, long live the king. And Avshalom asked Hushai, how is, is this how you show kindness to your friend? Why didn't you go with your friend? And Hushai replied, No, but whomever Adonai and his people and all the men of Israel choose, his I will be, and with him I will stay. Moreover, whom should I serve? Shouldn't I serve in the presence of his son? Just as I have served in your father's presence, so I'll be in your presence. And Avshalom said, uh, rather, Itophel said to Avshalom, Go in, sleep with your father's concubines, the ones he left to take care of the palace. All Israel will hear that your father utterly despises you. This will strengthen the position of all those who are on your side. So they set up a tent for Avshalom on the roof of the palace. And Avshalom went in to sleep with his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. And in those days, Akitophel's advice was regarded as highly as if someone had sought out the word of God. It was this way with Akitophel's advice, both to David and to Avshalom. Well, when we last met, we ended with this fellow Ziva, Mephibosheth's Gentile servant bringing gifts to David as David was fleeing Jerusalem. Now on the one hand, David is certainly happy for these needed provisions that Zevaz brought with him. But on the other, David's perplexed, he's angry that Mephibosheth would show such little gratitude for what David has done for him that he, he didn't even personally come to the king's aid in his time of need. But it gets worse. Ziva tells David that Mephibosheth was thrilled by this rebellion because it meant that today the house of Israel will restore my father's kingship to me. Ziva is claiming that Mephibosheth believes that after David is deposed, Absalom's going to turn the throne over to its rightful owner, a descendant of King Saul, who's none other than Mephibosheth himself. Now, one can imagine why David's response to Ziva was that as of this moment, everything that belonged to Mephibosheth was now ripped away from him and turned over to Ziva. The whole thing was one big lie, as we're going to soon find out. And yet, as preposterous as it all even sounds, if one were to just 
pause and ponder Ziva's improbable claims, David gave it credence and he accepted it as truth. And after accepting these supplies from Ziva, David moved on to a place called Bahrim and there encountered a very hostile man, a distant relative of King Saul's. Bahrim was a, a village on the outskirts of Jerusalem, but it was in the tribal territory of Benjamin. The location is pertinent because Benjamin was Saul's tribe. And obviously his family and his tribe had never gotten over their bitterness that not only had their Benjamite king died in battle, but his dynasty was no longer ruling and instead had been replaced by his nemesis, David, who was of the rival tribe of Judah. It was because of this location and what was essentially unfriendly territory that a lone assailant, this elderly Shimei, had the gall to attack the king of Israel with curses and insults. That David was surrounded by his personal bodyguard makes it all the more astounding. And it can only mean that many other of the local Benjamite residents were looking on in a menacing way. And so Shimei felt emboldened to assault the king and his large party of people. Killer! Shimei calls out. Good for nothing! In Hebrew, Shimei called David an Ish Hadam, a man of blood. An Ish Belial, a man of worthlessness. These are the strongest possible curse words, usually reserved for heinous criminals. Perhaps Shimei had David's murder of Uriah, his scandalous affair with Bathsheba in mind, but I don't think so. Because while those events might have been disturbing to Shimei, there was certainly nothing personal in it. What would have mattered more to him were these long, simmering matters of family honor. Shimei was cursing David for something that was much dearer to his heart than the death of some stranger from another tribe. It was the murders of Abner, Saul's Benjamite general, and King Ishbosheth, Saul's son, who had indeed gained the throne. This is what enraged him. Though it wasn't true, and David had gone to great length to prove that he had no part in those deaths, Saul's extended family in the tribe of Benjamin in general and many throughout the northern tribes of Israel remained skeptical. No matter how one looked at it, technically innocent or not, David benefited because those murders helped to consolidate David's power by eliminating rivals. And at the same time, it removed all power and authority from the tribe of Benjamin. The king and his procession kept moving on, trying to ignore the screaming Shimei. But now the situation escalates because he starts hurling stones and dirt at David. 
Avishai, David's nephew, one of his military commanders, can't tolerate any more of this. And he tells David he's going to separate this man from his head for daring to curse the king of Israel. But David won't allow it. And a remarkable, humble and pious attitude, David first chastises Avishai for being so quick to want to take Shimei's life for, for mere words. Never more truly has the older self finally reappeared in David. And refreshing it was to see it in such a volatile situation. At this moment, David, David had a sense of deserving everything Shimei was dishing out. And in any case, this was merely the Lord using this incensed old man to say out loud what everybody else was silently thinking. It was pointless to crush Shimei or any other man who felt this way. Rather, David's only hope of deliverance was from the one who had cursed him in the first place. Jehovah God of Israel. You know, in this story, one cannot help but recall the scene of Messiah Yeshua journeying to Jerusalem near the end of his earthly ministry. He and his disciples came to a, a notoriously unfriendly village in Samaria where Yeshua was insulted. And so his enraged followers wanted to take deadly action. Now I prefer the way this reads from the NAS version, so bear with me. Just, just listen to this. This is in Luke 9, 51-56. And it came about when the days were approaching for his ascension that he resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went, and they entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. And they did not receive him, because he was journeying with his face towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them all? But he turned and he rebuked them. And he said, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man didn't come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. The villagers of Samaria were doing no more in their reaction to this Jewish Messiah than what had been divinely prophesied from times past. And so Yeshua was not about to punish them for it. And this is just as Shimei was doing no more than what Yehovah prophesied to King David would happen to him as a divine curse. So David inherently knew he had no right to punish this man for something God sent him to do. Messiah said that his purpose was that he came to save, not to kill. David's purpose was that leaving Jerusalem 
was to spare lives. So he wasn't about now to start killing. Jesus' reaction was to chastise his followers that didn't seem to understand what kind of spirit they were now of. A Holy Spirit. But since the Son of Man indeed was of the Holy Spirit, the same as theirs, really. And he was acutely aware of it. He had no animosity towards those Samaritans. He wasn't about to end their lives over a mere insult. David's reaction was to chastise the sons of Zeruiah, who by the way was his sister, who although of the same bloodline as David, possessed the kind of character that wanted to respond to mere insults with deadly force. This was not David's character. He would not kill his own people for such a a petty reason. Thus the two stories of Yeshua in Samaria and of David in Bahrim are remarkably parallel. Well, verse 14 explains that despite all the animosity showed towards David, and by inference all who continued on in their loyalty to David, the people were exhausted and so they stopped and rested in Bahrim. And verse 15 changes the scene from David at Bahrim to Absalom in Jerusalem. And accompanying Absalom are Akitophel and Hushai. And Hushai, still loyal to David, says to Abishalom, Long live the king! This was an effort to gain Absalom's trust. But notice, he cleverly did not say, Long live Abishalom. Essentially, Hushai was able to say, Long live the king, in reference to David. While Absalom, of course, assumed the honor was meant as towards himself. However, Absalom was skeptical. And Hushai had to make it clear that his calling was to serve the kingdom of Israel. And therefore, whatever king sat on the throne, he would be the beneficiary of his counsel. So Absalom now turns to Akitophel for advice on what the next step in bringing this coup to its desired ending ought to be. And Akitophel says that the first thing that Absalom ought to do is to go and have sexual relations with those ten concubines that David had left behind to care for the palace. Now why would Akitophel suggest such a thing? No doubt, Akitophel and the other leaders of the rebellion had concern that reconciliation between David and his son Absalom was still a possibility, no matter how unlikely. David, having proved to be the ever-indulgent father, might just accept this prodigal son back into his good graces should Absalom get cold feet or his efforts fall short and David is returned to the throne. In such a situation, it goes without saying that while Absalom would probably survive, his co-conspirators definitely would not. So to shut off all avenue of any possible reconciliation, 
Akitophel proposes this reprehensible act by which Absalom would, in a very public display on top of the palace roof, take David's concubines one by one and have sex with them. The point of no return would have been passed. Now, interestingly, this event was all part of the curse that the Lord had laid upon David. In 1 Samuel 12, the prophet Nathan told David, Here is what Adonai says, I will generate evil against you out of your own household. I will take your wives before your very eyes and give them to your neighbor. He will go to bed with your wives and everyone will know about it. For you did it secretly. But I will do this before all Israel in broad daylight. Let's move on to chapter 17. We're going to read all this but just talk about it for just a few minutes. Akitophel said to Avshalom, Now let me choose 12,000 men and I'll pursue David tonight. I'll fall on him unexpectedly when he's tired and powerless. I'll frighten him. All the people with him will flee and I'll attack only the king. Then I'll bring back to you all the people. And when they've all returned except the one you're seeking, all the people will be at peace. What he said pleased Avshalom and all the leaders of Israel. Then Avshalom said, Now call also Hushai the Arki and let's give him equal hearing to what he has to say. And when Hushai appeared before Avshalom, Avshalom said to him, Now, Akitophel has said such and such. Should we do what he says? If not, you tell us. And Hushai said to Avshalom, The advice Akitophel has given this time is not good. You know, continued Hushai, that your father and his men are powerful men and that they are as bitter as a bear deprived of her cubs in the wild. Moreover, your father is a military man, and he won't camp with the rest of his people. Right now he's hidden in a pit or, or somewhere. So what's, what will happen is this. When they begin their attack, and whoever hears about it says, a slaughter is taking place among Avshalom's followers, then even the strongest among them, someone whose courage is like a lion, will completely collapse. For all Israel knows that your father is a powerful man, and those with him are powerful men. Rather, I advise that you summon all Israel to come to you, from Dan to Beersheba, numbering as many as sand grains on the seashore. Then you go to battle yourself. In this way, we'll come upon him wherever he is. We'll fall on him as the dew falls on the ground. Of him and all the men with him, we won't leave even one of them alive. If he withdraws into a city, then all Israel will bring up ropes to that city and will drag it into the riverbed until not even a pebble's left. Avshalom and all the men of Israel said, the advice of Hushai the Arki is better than the advice of Akitophel. For Adonai has determined to frustrate the good advice of Akitophel so that Adonai could bring disaster on Avshalom. And then Hushai said to Sadok and Neviatar the priests, 
Akitofel gave you such and such advice to Avshalom and the leaders of Israel, but I advised so and so. Now therefore, Quince, send quickly and tell David, don't stay tonight in the desert plains, but whatever it takes, move on from there. Otherwise, the king and his people with him will be engulfed. Yohanatan and Achib Ma'atz were staying at Ein Rogel. A female servant was to go and tell them, and they in turn were to go and tell David, for it would not do to have them seen entering the city. But a boy saw them. And he told Avshalom. So both of them took off quickly. They came to the house of the man of Bachrim who had a cistern in his courtyard. They went down into it. And his wife spread a covering over the cistern's opening and scattered drying grain on it so that nothing showed. Avshalom's servant came to the woman at the house and asked, Where is Akitamatz and Yohanatan? And the woman answered him, They've crossed the stream. After searching and not finding them, they returned to Jerusalem. Let's stop there. Akitophel continues advice, his advice to Absalom by telling him that King David must be done away with immediately or there's going to be a protracted civil war. So Akitophel wanted to choose a force of men sufficient to quickly chase down David. Now the idea of choosing 12,000 is so that it would symbolize a thousand men from each of the 12 tribes indicating all unity consensus even though no doubt the composition of the force would not be of an exactly equal number of men from each tribe now this would be largely a group of northern tribes who had retained a resentment against David and a loyalty towards Saul's family the idea was that since this was all happening so quickly and everything was still unsettled and in disarray while David and his outnumbered men were still somewhat disorganized, weary, and dispirited, these 12,000 would fall upon them at night. David's followers would panic and flee, leaving David vulnerable, and he would be easily assassinated. Then the people would be told that they're pardoned from having continued loyalty for a time to their now dead king and persuaded to come home where they could pledge their loyalty to Absalom. Thus long-running blood feuds would be avoided. And with David dead, the people would understand that the government is now firmly Avshalom's and there's no point in resisting it. Akitofel's strategy is diabolically cunning and it has every chance of succeeding. Let's stop here for today.